can you tell me about some of the conversations that you had with this crazy skipper? Like, what, what made him so crazy? But he would always go a bit crazy when he got into port. Drinking's quite common in the sailing environment, unfortunately, but he would uh, get a little bit bent when he got into, into port and get very drunk. But uh, there was one night in particular where we had some really big seas coming through and uh, we were crossing the Bay of Biscays. It was a very dark night, there was no moon, very few stars, and the boat was on full sail and it was a racing yacht. And the waves were big because we were in the, in the middle of these reflective waves, so some of the waves were coming in directly onto the side of the, of, of the yacht. So you would start to feel the, the sail stalling and the boat would slow down and then you would realise, because then you would hear the wave beside you, the crest of the wave would start to rumble. It was just waves crashing over the deck and the boat was flying around everywhere. At times, I have to say, I was a little bit challenged. <laughs> so I sort of suggested to the owner that maybe we uh, reef the sail a little bit and slow down a little bit. And he was adamant that, no, we're sailing at top speed and we're going to keep going. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Welcome to episode three of our series on ecotourism in Cabo, Mexico, where we'll be discovering the stories, culture, and landscape that make up one of the world's top tourist destinations. What you just heard was Karen Bradfield describing what to most people would be a terrifying memory from her years in competitive sailing. But as we're about to hear, these experiences that would cause most people to run the opposite way actually caused Karen to lean in. After breaking from her career in corporate engineering, Karen found herself swimming with sharks, scuba diving, sailing to South America, and providing medical aid to countries in need. Eventually, she'll land in Baja, California, where she'll found her tour company, Adventures in Baja. That's where I met up with her today, on the warm sand of Cabo's sun-kissed coast. Can you actually tell me where we are right now? Okay, so we're sitting on a beach that's beside the um, a really nice hotel. I forgot what the name of the hotel is. I just told you to come here, and I forgot the name what, of the hotel. I forgot. I put it in. What was it called? Uh, it's called the Cape Hotel. The Cape. There we go. <laughs> so this is a beach. It's quite a quiet local beach. It's a good surf spot as well. There's a nice surf break here. It's a pretty furious surf break, but it has an amazing view towards the arch of uh, Cabo San Lucas, which is a pretty prominent and rather famous destination for quite a lot of people that come here. So Yeah, and uh, we can actually see that arch all the way in the distance over there. Karen always had a knack for exploration. And with a childhood spent in the UK close to the ocean's edge, she was never a stranger to the wonders of the sea. With her strong sense of bravery and deep love for adventure, Karen just wasn't your average kid. What are some of your just earliest memories? 
really I spent a lot of time in this hills in Scotland running with oh my, my God, dog. Amazing. And- what does that look like? Rainy. Just rainy? <laughs> no, it's beautiful, but it's very remote. Rainy and also green, I imagine. Yeah, I'm imagining green. just like rolling hills with long grass and uh, a dog chasing you around and as you go heather. through the fields. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I was also quite a good swimmer, so I live quite close to the ocean, so I would always train and swim and even in the freezing English yeah, channel. I was I was thinking uh, the water is pretty cold. It's over horrible. There, yeah? yeah, it's horrible. Oh, I mean, it's okay. If that's what you have, that's what you have. Was your whole family just a group of swimmers and water people? Or were you the only one? How do you get started? Well, I, my mum couldn't actually swim. She was always determined that we would not be scared of water. So she introduced us to water when we were quite young and uh, basically took us for swimming lessons. And I did uh, quite a bit of competition swimming and with my school. And I love to swim. Your mom basically said, you're not going to be afraid of the ocean. Did that actually work? Were you still not afraid of the ocean? Well, I had my moments. So I used to swim quite a lot, but always in quite shallow water. But I had a bit of a a life-changing experience when I was quite young. And I watched the crazy movie called Jaws, which I think many millions or zillions have been terrified by. And goodness, how many sharks have been terrified by after... But I had a, an intrepid fear of deep water and dark objects below me. So, uh, you know, obviously in England, you don't see anything in the water anyway, so it doesn't matter too much. But, but I mean, everything looks like dark, a dark object below you when everything is dark <laughs> you below you. Anything. Yeah. And so did you try to like overcome that fear or was it just something in the back of your mind constantly? I had it in the back of my mind for sure. Actually, I used to have dreams. If my arm dangled out the side of the bed, I would be taken by a great weight shark. Oh my God. And it was completely irrational and I had to resolve it. Karen knew these fears were irrational and that she needed to resolve them. Going out into the ocean was one of her greatest joys and watching her mom miss out on that joy because of fear was something she absolutely refused to replicate. With each dive into that freezing cold water, Karen was reminded that intimidating and uncomfortable challenges wouldn't stop her and couldn't stop her. This feeling was something she'd need to believe wholeheartedly when she began competitive sailing. I also want to talk about the other part of your water life, sailing. How did you get started in there? Well, my dad was in the Navy, and so he was always on board a boat, and I always wanted to sail, so I had uh, sailing lessons from a young age. That's the other thing about the ocean was it seemed to always call me back to my father. So when I was by the ocean, I felt very close to him, which was great, which is so unique. With sailing, how did that interest develop? Just through sailing school when I was young. And then I started competing in uh, yachting racing. Really, it went from there. And I just loved to be on the ocean. What is long distance sailing? Well, from the UK, we do like two to four days racing. Oh, wow. To uh, over to the continent and back again. How old were you when you were doing this? I started when I was about 12. Wait, you were... Oh, not the long trips. Okay. Not the long trips. <laughs> I'm imagining... The shorter trips. Maybe a day when I was 12. Still a day. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Were there ever times where you were scared or the like the conditions got bad? Well, we headed out one day and I said to the owner of the boat, I think the conditions were a bit hard for our crew. And he said, no, we'll be fine. We can turn back whenever we want. 
We headed out and the weather started building. We had seven on board. After half an hour, five were downstairs being sick and two of us were left on the deck. Wait, wait, what are you thinking during this time? Like, what, what are the conversations going around the boat? Well, yeah, the radio and on the radio, the, the Coast Guard was saying, basically, we're overloaded with calls. So if you are in a position to assist any yachts, please step in and assist. And it's like, well, we're not in a position to assist anyone. We're in trouble. So. We need assistance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was a few worried moments, I think, but we just had to keep sailing. What were you learning about yourself in those situations where really life is on the line? And what were you learning about the people you were sailing with? A lot of trust comes out of it because we trusted each other to basically keep the boat and the five people that weren't very well below deck in a safe situation. You either do it one or two ways. You run away from it and you don't do it again and you get scared or you say, okay, I, I, I can do this. I can take on challenges and I can trust myself to get through these challenges and I can, you know, with the experience I have, I can make it out the other side. And I imagine you chose the latter. I did, yeah. <laughs> the combination of structure and freedom out at sea is a pretty good metaphor for adolescence. Exploring what life has to offer, we drift out into the ocean of possibilities, hoping to discover a personal sense of direction. We learn to navigate freedom and weather our storms independently. For most teenagers, this metaphor remains figurative, but it was Karen's reality. Her confidence was being built by experiences that most people go their entire life without. And that was something that would give her a head start as she stepped into adulthood. How did you start going towards engineering? I always wanted to be a vet, actually. I have a passion about all animals. And I didn't make the grades at school to be a vet. So I sort of stepped into it through the back door. And then I got offered a job for Procter & Gamble. How did it feel to get that job? It was like a, a new door that was opening. I just had a good feel. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty observant person that sort of takes stock and uh, can see things from the feet, really, and just make decisions pretty quickly. I'm a pretty good decision maker. And things worked out well. I think I felt pretty fortunate. I had a great group of friends. I got to work with different cultures and different people. I was traveling a lot, which was great. But uh, I also had a lot of trust from my manager. And uh, basically, I had an open book to do what I wanted to do with the project. But there was still one little thing, or I guess one big thing, that could intimidate Karen. I did a trip to Australia for a month traveling. I wanted to overcome my fear of sharks, so I, I signed up for the open water course and did that on the Great Barrier Reef. At the end of my trip, uh, I was traveling with a friend in the outback for three weeks. And then I went to Cairns and went out on a liverboard and did my open water paddy certification. And at the end of that, there was one of the opportunities was to do a, a, a night dive. At nighttime, the sharks were always around the boat. So I'd known that already. And I just, I just jumped in. Yeah, I had to... Uh, what was going through your mind when you were about to jump in? Was it fear? It was complete fear. Yeah, it was complete What were you saying fear. to yourself? I think it was it was now or never. If I hadn't if I hadn't taken that step, then I probably would never have had the the courage to face sharks. So, and I have to say, I was pretty terrified. But uh, I came away with 
an absolute respect for for sharks because they just looked and they circled and they circled and they looked and they were just beautiful. I mean, such an amazing species. It was just an incredible experience to be in the water with them. And since then, I've been hooked on sharks. Why do you feel a need to face these fears or put your yourself in situations where you are confronting something you're afraid of? I think because when I was young, I kept having those dreams about waking up and being surrounded by sharks. And I didn't want to live the rest of my life being, you know, being scared of something in the ocean because the ocean was so important to me. It was irrational and it was an irrational fear that I had to overcome. So I pushed myself to do it and it was incredible. So suddenly any irrational thoughts I had just went out the window because it, it wasn't... Because you confronted the ultimate irrational I confronted thought. it, yeah, exactly. And, and I, what I saw was the, the error in the film that I had remembered all those years of my life. Of this horrible predator that's going to kill anything it sees. And, and, and I was just awe-inspired by this... If, if that's not a reason to confront your fears, what is, you know, okay, you might come away and you might decide it's not for you. Or you might come away and develop a new passion for something that you've been frightened of all your life. I do believe that life is a corridor and in the corridor, there are lots of doors. And if you don't check out sometimes what's behind them, then you don't know what you've missed. According to Harvard professor David Ropeek, we shouldn't always trust the fears that lead us to miss out on things. In his article about the psychology of risk perception, he used the fear of sharks to actually illustrate this. Freak accidents like being smashed by a vending machine or falling out of your own bed are actually way, way more likely to kill you than a shark. Yet our risk perception doesn't actually take this into account. We typically gauge our fears off the emotional factors like suffering, uncertainty, and maybe media coverage. You know, like imagining three rows of teeth chomping down on your arm or feeling unsettled when your legs dangle in the dark, murky water. And that explains why 38% of Americans steer clear of the ocean. But on the other hand, very few people will opt out of a high bed frame. Our emotionally driven fears cause what Ropeek calls the risk perception gap, meaning that something can be extremely dangerous, but if it doesn't have an emotional effect, we're far less likely to take precaution. For example, like sitting in the sun without sunscreen, super deadly, but most people won't opt in for the sunscreen. At the end of the day, we, like Karen, should reflect on the reality of the risks we choose to take. But while swimming with sharks wound up being a positive experience, Karen's flight home wouldn't be so harmless. I got back to the UK after one month of backpacking and doing my open water set. On the way home, my appendix blew up on the plane. And I, and I developed periodontitis and septicemia. So uh, I got home and I had a, an operation and a month off of work and a, a little bit of time to reflect about being in the ocean, I think. You are saying it like it's not a big deal. Well, it was, it was pretty bad at the time. Because <laughs> you were just like, yeah, I was on a plane, my appendix exploded, and I was like a little bit out of it. <laughs> Your appendix exploded. It sucked, yeah. That, that's it that's like, that can, you can die from that. Well, the funny thing was that I got to Singapore and I knew that I wasn't very well. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just a stomach ache. And I got off the plane and I said, could I see a doctor? And they said to me, if you see a doctor, then you're off the flight back to England. And the idea of being in Singapore with a severe injury was like, 
not something I wanted to entertain. So I pretended and I got back on the plane and then within half an hour I'd passed out. So I, I went unconscious um, with pain, I think a couple of hours into the trip from Singapore to the UK. One of the air stewardesses was a nurse in her previous uh, history and uh, she said, oh, it's your appendix. So they gave me a few painkillers and then the plane landed in London. So I, I, I then went straight to the hospital. First. And what did they say? Like, were, were you nervous or was it was it pretty easy? They didn't really believe that I was in so much pain. So uh, they actually thought I was a bit of a fake. And uh, they left me in the A&E ward for 12 hours before they <laughs> admitted me to hospital. And then by the time they actually admitted me and then they realized the extent of what happened, then it was it, it progressed quite far by then. And then I was on a flight to the U.S. on business one day, and there was a call out on the tannoy saying, uh, you know, if anyone has, a, if anyone's a doctor, please make themselves known to the cabin crew. And I'm like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. The next thing I see is this poor guy getting wheeled past me, and he's as dead as a dodo. And uh, he uh, was 65. He'd just retired, and he was going to see his family for in the U.S. for the first time in 15 years. And he had a heart attack on the plane, and he never made it. And I was like, how oh, damn it, that's really not good. It made me think about if, if I work until I'm 65 and then try to do the things that I want to do, then maybe it will be too late to do those things. So, And I decided at that time that I was going to return to Australia and um, become a professional dive master. And like every other door Karen approached, it was better to risk opening it than leaving it closed. Yeah, but doing my dive master was amazing. I was living on the Great Barrier Reef on a liverboard for six months and uh, doing my training. And every morning I'd wake up at five and I was nothing but ocean. And uh, and then, of course, uh, I'd go to bed and there was nothing but ocean and, and dive between five and seven times a day. So it was like a dream come true, really. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so then I traveled through Oz and New Zealand and Asia and worked there. And I sort of had the feeling that unless I went back to engineering, I might not be able to get back into engineering if I didn't do it at that time. So after, Did you want to, though? Well, you know, you have these ideas in your mind that you're supposed to be responsible and you're supposed to have a house and you're supposed to have a, you know, a stable background and a, you know, stability in your life. And so I had that mm, talking in my ear, I suppose, that parrot talking in my ear. I did love Southeast Asia, uh, but I realized that from a perspective of culture, it was going to be a hard place to live in because it, it's a very different culture. It wasn't all plain sailing. You know, there was quite a few incidences where it was... Uh, Can you tell me one of those incidents? I had one thing one night when uh, I was in uh, an island in Malaysia and it was a very strict uh, Muslim environment, but obviously you're working in a wetsuit and the water's warm, so you're wearing a bikini most of the time. But I was sleeping in this little uh, cabin. That's where the accommodation was for the dive shop. And I heard this creeping around the side of the cabin, and there were little holes drilled in the wall of the in the wood. And, and I realized that so there was somebody outside peeking up. <laughs> oh, my God. So I sort of located him creeping around the house and picked up a pen and knew which hole he's probably looking through and put the pen through the hole and stabbed him. Oh, my God. I wasn't very happy about that. And, you know, it, it's difficult because I, I really respect other cultures. But Is that a cultural thing? You know, in Muslim countries, it's, it's quite hard because the devout Muslims don't respect women that don't wear full gowns. And even the children wear full gowns and they're covered all the time. And 
that's their culture. If you're working in diving, then you can't wear a full gown and you can't be covered all the time. Obviously, you want to respect cultures and you don't want to uh, and you don't want to upset religions. At the same time, it's your job. Another occasion, I was working in Thailand, and I knew the owner of the shop um, quite well and the other dive master quite well. And a woman came in, and her husband was working on the boat, the liverboard that I was running. She was on her knees, and she was begging this guy for help. And she was Buddhist, and he was Muslim. As a woman, I wanted to step in and help. I couldn't understand because they were speaking in Thai very quickly. And I had to really think about what's culturally the right thing to do here because it was difficult for me to hear her in such a terrible state. But I also knew that because I'd spent enough time learning the culture and with the people that if I'd stepped in, I would have, you know, she would have lost face from my intervention. And that was a really bitter pill to swallow. Of course, instinctively, as a woman, I want to help. You know, I want to help stand up for women and say, no, you know, we need to help her and we can change the crew and whatever. But I didn't. And, and it actually was the right thing to do because it would have been very much more difficult for her if I had stepped in. Staying in Southeast Asia and living there wasn't really going to be the right option for me in, because of those aspects, because of my beliefs and nothing to do with not acceptance of religion, just working within those religions in an environment like diving as a woman was quite challenging. And so you end up going back. I did, yeah. I imagine part of it is the cultural barrier, but I feel it, it seems like more of it is the, I should be doing the right thing. I should be an adult. I should have the stability, the job, whatever comes with that. How do you fit everything back into that tiny little bottle of a sustainable life in the UK? Before I left Thailand, I was doing a lot of rock climbing. And I decided that one thing of coming home to the, or going back to the UK was going to be continuing rock climbing. So I got home, I found a job in an area in the south coast of, so I could be near the sea and sail. Was this an engineering job? Yeah, another engineering job, yeah. And then I joined a climbing club. So I used to travel with the climbers and we used to climb crazy rocks and go up and... So you still had that by weekends and nights? Yeah, I think that was like, you know, I was still going to sail. I was I was still going to... I told myself that oh, I was going to return to the UK, then I had to keep climbing. So I did that. You mentioned something to me earlier that it's harder to come back than it is to leave. Was coming back hard for you at all? Yeah, coming back was really hard, yeah. You know, like I say, you walk away from your friends for three years and, and you come back and you expect them to welcome you with open arms because they've been living their own lives, looking after their children and, you know, paying the bills and the taxes and you've been trotting around the world like some free-for-all fairy. And here you come, you just walk back into their life and, you know, actually that was quite difficult because I contacted a lot of the people I used to work with when I was in London. I said, oh, I'm back home, you know, can we get together? And actually... Uh, some of them didn't want to get together. The friends that you've had since you were born, you walk away from, but their lives continue on that same path. Maybe people view you as like a not very responsible person. And I can understand that. I can appreciate that. It was a bit of pill to swallow, but it was uh, something I just had to come to terms with. People change all the time. Our perspectives, likes, dislikes are constantly evolving. But for some reason, 
when we leave a place, it's almost like we expect time just to stop, but it doesn't. What Karen's talking about reminds me of this quote that says, when we're home, we can take inventory of who we are. And that's what Karen had to face upon her return. She had to recalibrate her identity, the identity she left behind. It's a good reminder that in any case, life just kind of keeps going on without you. But maybe that isn't such a bad thing. The time away transformed Karen. She morphed into a new person, one who wasn't afraid to conquer her fears, to encounter different cultures and just do stuff. There's nothing wrong with opting for stability, but that just wasn't what Karen set out to do. She was being called to see and experience more of the world, and soon she'd be on the move again. Going up to 2012, where are you with your work and are you feeling an itch to do anything else? Now, I'd always been a, a very keen traveler, but I had a passion to sail, circumnavigate the ocean. So that was one thing that was always in my mind. What does it mean to circumnavigate the ocean? Basically to sail, from example, from England and return to England by navigating all the way around the uh, tropics and uh, yeah, make a full loop of the world, really. But that was my inspiration for me leaving the UK was uh, to do some ocean sailing. Why did you feel that was a time to leave? Well, I was getting a bit older and uh, ocean sailing is not really for, not for the lighthearted. <laughs> you need to be, have a certain level of physical fitness and uh, ability to haul ass if you need to, to, to get on deck and do something in bad weather. I just felt like it was the time to go. I had a calling and uh, I could have stayed in my job and I had a great job, but I wanted to sail. So what was your plan? Because you said there was a bunch of different loops. Your plan was just to go in a straight go around, but I imagine you have to prepare pretty intensely for something like this. I was searching online for people that needed crew or first mates to deliver their yachts to other locations. So came across a guy who was from Norway, the most craziest skipper I've ever sailed with, actually. An amazing, amazing sailor, but absolutely mad. And uh, he was a very accomplished sailor. He had a very fast yacht and uh, he wanted to take it to the Canary Islands and he wanted a hand to take it down there. So I joined him uh, for that part of the navigation. And uh, we had other crew coming on board at certain times and stepping off. And uh, we, we were doing some pretty fast sailing on the way down the coast of Europe and Africa. And it was very exciting. Can you tell me about some of the conversations that you had with this crazy skipper? Like what, what made him so crazy? But he would always go a bit crazy when he got into port. Drinking is quite common in the sailing environment, unfortunately, but he would uh, get a little bit bent when he got into, into port and get very drunk. But uh, there was one night in particular where we had some really big seas coming through and uh, we were crossing the Bay of Biscay. So the Bay of Biscay is quite famous in sailing, uh, in the sailing world uh, because basically there's a really deep trench that stops abruptly and it gets shallow quite quickly. So you get a reflective wave off, the, off, off this trough. It was a very dark night. There was no moon, very few stars, and the boat was on full sail and it was a racing yacht. And the waves were big because we were in the, in the middle of these reflective waves. So some of the waves were coming in directly onto the side of the, of, of the yacht. So you would start to feel the, the sail stalling and the boat would slow down. And then you would realize, because then you would hear the wave beside you, the crest of the wave would start to rumble. So it's all suggested to the owner that maybe we uh, reef the sail a little bit and slow down a little bit. 
And he was adamant that, no, we're sailing at top speed and we're going to keep going. So we did. And it was a bit like being in a washing machine when I was off duty, when I wasn't on the helm. It was just waves crashing over the deck and the boat was flying around everywhere. And it was, uh, and, it, and it did feel very stable. But uh, with the wind speeds that we had and the, and, and the wave height, at times, I have to say, I was a little bit challenged. <laughs> what you were trying to learn from this trip, the circumnavigation, like why was it important to you? And um, like, what were you trying to learn from yourself? And what, what, what did you learn about yourself? I suppose it's the point of stepping into the unknown. So you're sort of taking your experience from many years. It's leaving a job that's a good job, a home that's a good home, friends and family that you know, and basically leaping into a space that you don't really know what's going to bring. So if you want to achieve something that's a little bit different for yourself and you don't try, then you'll never know. I think it's a, a nice way to push yourself into a different sphere of your life. It seems that throughout Karen's own life, these leaps into the unknown are ways of seeing what other chances lie out there, ways of peeking behind other doors in life's corridor. She knew that if she didn't sail now, she might regret it later or miss out on an opportunity that she didn't even know about yet. And sure enough, after taking the leap to circumnavigate, something unexpected crossed her path. Took this trip. You didn't make it all the way around the world, right? So... What was your plan um, and how did it develop as you went around the world? I I had a plan to circumnavigate, but I I didn't really have a plan besides the first four months. So we were on board with another captain and he talked about this charity in Panama that was called the Floating Doctors. And he said, oh, you know, they're basically ferrying people through the archipelago of Bocas del Toro to help provide them with medical support and medical care. And they need skippers and they need people to help with the boats. And what we did was we stepped off the boat and uh, went to Bocas del Toro and uh, volunteered with this organization for originally one month, but stayed for five months. You could, if you tell me conversations you had with people, because it sounds like an amazing experience. So I want to anchor it in a conversation or a person. One of our patients was in a very remote, actually in a jungle location. This time we had to actually load the mules and walk for two days up a mountain to get to this one particular village. And the reason why we were specifically going to that village, because one of the children in the village was very, very sick and had a terminal illness. We were hiking up and it was really wet and boggy and, you know, the horses were like up to their knees in mud and we were all like, it was just crazy. It was, it was beautiful. a small village but uh, they basically opened up their village and they welcomed us in and the kids were just all all around us and they're in their beautiful you know their beautiful dresses and and, uh, just to see the the opening that they gave us and the you know the the kindness that they shared with us we took food with us uh, because we obviously they were quite poor people so we weren't expecting them to feed us for four days so we carried in our food but they would cook for us and for them and we would all sit together in, you know, in a part of the village and just uh, just uh, an in- incredible reaction. Amazingly humble, beautiful people. But 
there was one time when this guy, he was driving a boat. We were in the middle of this mangrove and uh, we were doing a, a mission. This guy came along and somebody told one of the translators that he couldn't see very well. I had been given a, um, you know, an optician set with like lenses and little glasses that I could make up um, glasses for people. That was one of my jobs. So this guy I said, oh, I'll come over, you know, we'll help you. And, and so he sat down and I started putting lenses in the glasses. And, um, and he'd been driving a boat all his life and he drives through very narrow mangrove swamps. And it turned out that his eyesight was like minus eight or plus eight or oh something. My God. Like he was almost blind. I mean, it was just incredible that he'd managed. He must have just done it instinctively. But by the time I'd finished making his glasses up, literally he was just completely like blown away because he could see, you know, he could see the trees. And I'm thinking, holy cow, how has this guy managed to drive this boat all his own? He was about 45 years old. He wasn't a young guy. But his eyes just opened and his smile just grew like, oh, it's phenomenal to see his face. Just, uh, you know, suddenly in an instant, his life was changed. <laughs> and he walks away with his glasses on and his big smile. These are experiences not many people get to have, right? In the moment, like, what are you, what are you thinking to yourself? Are you thinking, I'm lucky or uh, like, 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 is there gratitude in those experiences? How do you incorporate those amazing experiences? And what were you thinking in the moment as well? I, I think a lot of us come from a background where we've probably always had food and we've probably always had water and we take it for granted that we have a tap that flows with drinking water or enough money to buy enough food to live on. But, um, when you're in an environment with people that, um, the, the last meal that they have, they would share with you. It's very interesting because I think a lot of people don't ever see that aspect of life, the openness of people. Does that make you more open? Yeah, I think it has to. I think it has to. If it doesn't make you more open, then you shouldn't be there because, you, you know, you see people around you and you help them. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it has to open your mind, you know, to, to situations and to appreciating things more. I don't agree with sure. that, actually. I don't, I don't think just having that experience allows people to become less selfish. I think you you have to take it a step deeper. Like, I think someone else could have that experience and not realize that you didn't necessarily deserve that food or you, you, or you shouldn't have expected it. Those people gave it to you out of kindness, not out of obligation. What I'm hearing is you took it an extra step where you're analyzing and looking at these people through the lens of gratitude, pushing back on what you said. Like, I don't think you have to do that. I think that's something unique to your story and, and people like you. But it sounds like an amazing experience. It was that human-to-human -human interaction that had the greatest impact on Karen's life. Not only was she living her dream by traveling the globe, but she was also actively helping other people improve their lives. Also, just to give an idea of what this place looks like, the mangroves of Panama look like basically coastal swamps and the families who live there rely on the mangroves fish and raw materials to survive but many mangroves are in decline due to urbanization and chemical spills so the need for a bar of soap and some fresh water was real by volunteering with floating doctors karen discovered a door worth entering one where she could make a positive impact for the people of panama but she wasn't going to stop there Karen would soon find herself in America, where she bounced around hostels until she landed in San Diego. So actually, when I was in San Diego, I was filling out a job application to work for the British Antarctic Survey. 
And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get the job because they said I didn't have enough experience in Antarctica. Then I was walking down the corridor of the hostel and I saw a map and uh, and they saw Baja. I was like, man, that's the Sea of Cortez. That's what Jacques Cousteau always used to talk about. And I'd read some of his books and I already had the passion for the ocean in my mind. And I thought, damn it, I've got to come and check it out. So that same day, I bumped into some guys and I, I sort of jumped in their car and hitched a lift with them down the bar. And we left like three days. Yeah, we left San Diego three days later. So I love two things about this. I love how you decide, I want to go experience Antarctica. Let me find some jobs that are in Antarctica. Like, I love that philosophy about work. And also, second thing is that you just find people and then travel with them and go crazy places. That's so cool. Any, uh, any stories from the trip that were interesting? We sort of camped on the beaches and we just sort of stayed in the, on, on the beaches every night. And I think, you know, the irony was that people were, oh, it's dangerous, it's Mexico, drug cartels and all that jazz. But I didn't find that at all in Baja. Straight away I found that people were incredibly welcoming and amazingly kind and friendly and genuine and uh, I didn't I really didn't travel with any fear at all and, and and since then I've never felt any fear down here it's amazing how Karen wound up in Baja after simply seeing it on a map one day having read the work of Jacques Rousseau French author and ocean researcher Karen felt adventure tugging at her once again she was being called out to sea it's interesting that upon arriving in Baja shouldn't feel any fear there, despite the stereotypes and stories outlining the danger of cartels. Before her trip to Australia, the danger of sharks seemed to loom over her head, but Baja inspired a sense of excitement and adventure. The more time she spent there, the more it continued to surprise her. I spent many years traveling, looking for whale sharks. I arrived into La Paz and there was all these signs, Tiburon Marina and whale shark. I was like, holy cow, what? And uh, so the first, of course, the first day we went out to swim with the whale sharks and I just could not believe it. I mean, it was like, there's like loads of them here. And it was just incredible, incredible. I arrived in Cabo and got a job as a dive master here. And a company offered to sponsor me for a visa. Everything just seemed to fall into place, really. And I remember, I think it was one of the first nights that I was down on the beach. I'm having a beer with a friend and there's manta rays jumping out the water and I've just swam with whale sharks. It became quite clear quite quickly that this place was super diverse and had so much life. So you were working for um, a dive company. When did you decide to open your own and why? I started to feel that it it wasn't focusing the, the, the experiences that we were giving weren't really focusing enough on the on embracing the nature and the reason why I set up Adventures in Baja was I, I wanted to try and introduce people in a you know in a, in a more focused way into the in, into the aspects of nature here and make it more special and more personal and so how did the company begin to develop like was it hard to set that all up no, I had the idea and I worked on the website. I built the client database up as well as working at the same time. What do you think the hardest part of starting it was? 
in the competition, I think. <laughs> Definitely standing out over the competition was the starting aspect that was the challenge. So word of mouth was really important to me. So people would recommend their friends and their friends would come and then they would write as reviews and then slowly the reviews grew the numbers of reviews grew and grew and grew and obviously the, the quality of the reviews were excellent and uh, and then you start to stand out and then you start to become you know more of a, a an aspect it's no wonder that the local diving industry is so competitive the subset of ecotourism sprang to life with the invention of scuba in 1942 so by the time karen first arrived in cabo Diving had grown from a specialized activity to the foundation of a booming local industry. After swimming in the sea that Jacques Cousteau once described as the aquarium of the world, Karen decided to prolong her stay. With 20,000-year-old coral reefs, over 900 types of fish, and 32 marine mammals, this was the perfect place for her to explore and work. Inspired by her unique vision of a nature-focused diving business, she took the plunge and started Baja Adventure. At first, she struggled to stand out in a crowded marketplace full of competitors with name recognition, but Karen never backed down from a challenge. So I think, you know, aspiring to a market of sustainable and respect for the, for the wildlife is a big aspect of uh, what's important to us, really. What does respect mean? Ecotourism is... You know, no use of plastic. And we, we talked to a lot of people about a lot of different aspects of being here in the Baja and their marine life. Um, but a lot of my clients are very interested in, in reducing their impact of waste on the planet. From the aspect of the marine life, you know, it, it definitely uh, is important to be observers in their life, in their world, and not interfere or change their behaviors. But in sustainability is quite important from perspective. You know, most of my captains were once fishermen. And now they're, they're whale shark captains or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're diving captains. But what's really awesome is uh, they were fishermen. They used to fish all the, every day of their life. And they come out on the boat and there they are, like, videoing and taking photos and sending it to their mates when, they, when, when there's, you know, whale shark going past and smiling and being happy about, you know, embracing life in, in the ocean and, and not fishing it. So it's about building a, you know, a sustainable... Um, income for, for the community so that they can basically step away from, you know, just fishing. And, you know, the more people that we can use and encourage to, to, to follow that path and, and, and actually make a good, a good living, enjoy the marine life and, uh, and, and, and have fun with the, the, the clients at the same time, it, it's just, it, it's so important. The diving industry is a high growth market and Mexican diving tourism currently makes a revenue comparable to their fishing industry. So there may come a time when these fish are literally too valuable to kill. But Karen is caught between the ideals of environmentalism and the realities of capitalism. So she seeks to balance that out by following the principles of ecotourism established by the International Ecotourism Society. She creates opportunities and financial benefits for locals, promotes cultural and environmental education respect, and by doing so, Karen managed to find a way to do what she loves while having a positive impact on the local community. What advice would you give to 
I think someone who might've been in a similar position to you where they were working at a nice engineering job or had uh, dreams for more. I think everyone has their different reasons for wanting to go. The thing is you can always return. If you leave with an open mind and go towards something that you think is calling you, then something will always pull your tail and you'll find something because the, the idea is that your eyes are open and you have a, a passion to discover something else. I think you have to have a, a, a slight focus on, on your direction. Otherwise, you tend to just um, drift. If you have a, a level of starting financial stability, then you can basically direct yourself and find work when you're moving and, and head towards the direction you want to go. And something always comes up. You know, in 10 years time, you might still be thinking, I, I should have left and I should have gone and I didn't go. And what if I had? What if? What a horrible thing what if is, you know, what a horrible phrase Sounds it is. Sounds like you don't have many what ifs. I, I don't have many, no. No, I don't have many. Ironically, when I look at my friends now that I worked with 25 years ago uh, in Procter & Gamble, they're now managers of massive factories and they've got amazing pensions. They've got great stability. If I look at what if, then I could have been in that position too. But I didn't want to be in that position. I wanted to step away and I wanted to discover cultures and I wanted to meet interesting and new people and see, you know, an amazing, you know, so many amazing parts of the world and make a difference, you know, try and try and make a difference to um, on the way. Something that I was thinking about or after Karen's interview was specifically like one how interesting her life was so so interesting she's traveled all over the world but also zeroing in on that return from traveling and all her friends moving on it seems like that is the danger of a nomadic lifestyle of living a life that is maybe really interesting and exciting but without deep roots and so you know that this this Cabo experiment living here for a month I, I really enjoyed it. It was really interesting. I made friends here that you know, I, I could call up and say, hey, like, I want to, can I stay over while I'm in Cavo? And they would most likely say yes. I don't know if they have the depth that you, you would want, like the, the depth of a lifelong friend that you've known for years, the trust that comes with that. And so I, I, I guess her story kind of reframed how I thought about nomading and how I thought about travel. Because before I thought, okay, only good things can come from traveling the world and seeing all these diverse perspectives. But, you know, you're, you're also leaving something behind. When you live an exciting nomadic life, you're trading excitement for stability. And that's not saying that you can't have solid friends when you're, when you're traveling, but just by their very nature, they're, they're, they're going to be quick interactions and then you move on or they move on. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the same. I don't know. It's not going to stop me from traveling, but it's probably going to stop me from having no base. I think having a base is really important. Having a base, you know, I want to have my base in Santa Monica. So having that base, I think, is important because I don't want to, I don't want to come back from traveling after a few years or come back to no one. That'd be super sad.
for many people, community and companionship serve as an anchor. It grounds them and provides a sense of belonging. Some research suggests that modern nomads like Karen can experience these emotional benefits by practicing place attachment, the emotional ties one makes to a place. It's a thing that enables them to love their environment, however different from home it may be. Reflecting on her story, it seems that Karen was practicing place attachment for years, forging social connections and engaging with communities wherever she went. And after years of surreal whirlwind adventures, Karen seems to have found her base right here in Cabo a base where she can be her fearless self and still belong. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Don. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiara, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan. And Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.